Hey, my name is Andrew Robinson. I'm an assistant producer on the Political Climate Podcast, and this episode is brought to you with support from Lyft. Lyft is continuing its leadership in creating a cleaner, healthier, and more equitable future with a bold commitment to reach 100% electric vehicles used on the Lyft platform by 2030. The shift to EVs will create opportunities for drivers to lower their costs and keep more of their earnings. Transportation currently accounts for the largest portion of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., and Lyft is committed to leading the way to decarbonize its platform through vehicle electrification. Learn more at liftimpact.com electric. If we're serious about getting our economy restarted and getting it back quicker, why wouldn't we focus on an area that can impact so many people across so many occupations in so many states, which, by the way, has been the fastest growing sector in America's economy. Uh, It's what we need to do. There's a lot of discussion these days about building back better and passing a green economic stimulus. But what exactly does this entail? On this bonus episode, we share insights and resources from a group of policy experts in California. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm your host, Julia Piper. Earlier this week, former Vice President Joe Biden, the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee, released his plan to build a modern, sustainable infrastructure and an equitable, clean energy future. The plan lays out a vision for creating a more resilient, low-carbon economy that will put the U.S. on a path to achieve net-zero emissions economy-wide by no later than 2050. The plan comes in the lead-up to the 2020 election and amid a catastrophic pandemic that has put millions of Americans out of work. While the U.S. economy has seen a modest rebound in recent weeks, as of June, more than 17 million Americans were still unemployed, with thousands more leaving the workforce entirely, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The clean energy sector is among those hard hit. The latest monthly analysis of unemployment filings by the nonpartisan Clean Energy Advocacy Group Environmental Entrepreneurs, or E2, as well as E4 the Future and the American Council on Renewable Energy, or ACOR, found that the clean energy sector, the largest employer of America's energy workers, is suffering badly in the wake of COVID-19. Half a million clean energy workers have filed for unemployment between the months of March and June. While some workers returned to their jobs last month as some states opened up, clean energy employment is still down 15% from the start of the year, when nearly 3.4 million Americans worked in renewable energy, energy efficiency, clean vehicles and fuels, and other clean energy sectors. Clean energy jobs had been growing 70% faster than the overall economy in previous years. Numerous energy experts, environmental organizations, advocates, lawmakers, and political candidates such as Joe Biden have released plans and op-eds calling for a green economic recovery. An analysis released this week by E2 and E4 the Future found that the U.S. could create 860,000 full-time jobs for at least five years if targeted clean energy investments were included in the next round of federal stimulus. By investing $99 billion into existing programs for renewable energy, energy efficiency, and grid modernization, these clean energy groups calculate that it would add $330 billion to the nation's economy in wages and tax revenues, more than tripling the amount invested. A major component of Joe Biden's platform is to increase federal procurement by $400 billion in his first term and to use those funds to purchase American-made clean energy products. My co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton, and I broke down the Biden plan and outlined key takeaways in our episode published earlier this week. If you haven't listened to that, I hope you'll go check it out. In the remainder of this episode, we'll turn to a conversation on charting a sustainable economic recovery with four California-based experts. Leading the discussion is former California State Senator and USC Schwarzenegger Institute Environmental Policy Director Fran Pavley, who authored several of the state's landmark climate policies, including AB 32. She's joined by J.R. DeShazo, Director of the UCLA Luskin Center for Innovation, as well as Bob Keefe, Executive Director of Environmental Entrepreneurs, and Matt Peterson, President and CEO of the Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator, or LACI. This discussion was co-hosted by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and the UCLA Luskin Center. 
It was recorded in late May, but the arguments are still relevant to today's policy debates on how to build back more sustainably. And for your reference, we've linked to many of the resources the speakers mentioned in the podcast show notes. And with that, I'll hand it over to former California State Senator Fran Pavley. Federal and state policymakers, as we know, are drafting some of the largest COVID-19 economic stimulus packages in our history. And the goal of this webinar is simply to highlight some of the challenges and the opportunities for smart investments in a new, more sustainable economy for the future. I, I think back a little bit on my time in the legislature, it was a long time ago, but first was the energy crisis, maybe caused by deregulation. That's a lesson learned in 2002. But what came out of that energy crisis? One of the things that came out of it in 2001 and two was our first RPS bill, first renewable portfolio standard bill. And look where we are today. We, we see 100% possibility of renewable energy by 2045. Um, then in 2008, when I got into the state Senate, that's when the, maybe it's me that's causing it, I'm trying to think about that. Um, the uh, mortgage meltdown on Wall Street really impacted California. Many homeowners lost their homes or their value was uh, down considerably. Our economy for our state uh, was in horrible straits. We made lots of cuts. But I was reading about lessons learned and what we could learn from 2008. And I just wanted to point out one in, perhaps instructive uh, lesson. And this is more on the federal level. Well, attached to stimulus dollar, dollars was commitment by businesses uh, to work with the administration in the future on other goals. So, for example, the automobile manufacturers who had for decades opposed any increase of fuel efficiency had agreed to work with the Obama administration once they were back on their feet again um, to do just that, increase fuel efficiency standards, which led also to uh, California's bill being passed and and dealing with air pollution as well as climate pollution from vehicles. So that was a good result. Also, what happened during the 2008 and 9 was as they were trying to stimulate our energy businesses in the United States, our fossil fuel businesses had to agree to allow stimulus, or not oppose it, stimulus money to go to renewables. That's when a lot of our solar companies took off. So there's lessons to be learned, and I think we have three just fantastic speakers today who are really individually capable of bringing different perspectives to this discussion. So the two sort of questions that all three speakers will maybe touch on in their presentations are what can the public sector, that means the academic or business or NGO sector, do to advance sustainability goals at the local, state, or federal levels? And how can we use this crisis to help transition the workforce to a clean energy economy with good jobs for the 21st century? And with that, JR, thank you very much, and we look forward to your presentation. Thank you, Fran, for that kind introduction. So I, I want to point out that um, the governor's budget has just come out, and, and many of us um, were, might, might be a little disappointed initially that it didn't contain uh, greater investments in the, the core energy, water, um, transportation, infrastructure innovations that, that many of us are working towards. And I, I just want to remind everyone that just as in 2008, these um, stimulus packages come in waves. There could be many of them um, at the state and at the federal level. And so I think we want to take a long-run view and then second, I, I just want to highlight um, and echo something that Fran said, which is we, we, we have among us living proof that, the, that sustainable stimulus strategies can work. The cost of solar is 75% is cheaper today than it was 10 years ago, in large part because of the SunShot initiative led by DOE, which helped commercialize and scale solar. Similarly, um, our electric vehicles are powered on batteries that have fallen, not quite, but almost as much. Again, led by federal um, stimulus efforts to commercialize battery technology. So it's, it, 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 
for, for those of us that have been around 10 or 15 years, it's almost recent memory that, that we can be successful at this. And, um, and what I want to do today is, is, is simply begin to um, highlight how we would go about thinking about how to design a stimulus package. And before I do that, I want to mention, since I represent the university, um, one of the things that is, I think, is always at stake during a recession like ours, um, when public funds dry up and even some venture capital funds dry up, is the loss of intellectual property around sustainable technologies. And I just want to highlight the importance of trying to sustain that funding and, 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 and sort of identify the consequences of losing that, that intellectual property as small businesses and startups exit the ecosystem. And I know Matt will talk about that in his role in helping to preserve those, those businesses. But first, let me just lay out some broad criteria for prioritizing sustainable stimulus. As we can see in this first wave of, of stimulus proposals that the governor has made, one of the things that, um, that always guides these packages are, can we quickly impact blue collar and low income workers and get them back to work? So the size and share of impacts and the speed of the stimulus job creation efforts are gonna be a, an important focus. And, and we also wanna privilege programs that benefit households that have been suffering and particularly um, the communities that, that host and in which reside um, the blue collar and low income workers that have been most impacted. So if, if the, they can be not only put to work by a program, but benefit directly from it, that's advantageous. And then almost inevitably, we have to borrow to, to engage in stimulus spending in the first half to two thirds of every recovery. Um, our businesses aren't, aren't back to where they were and the tax revenues aren't where they need to be. So we have to borrow and, and to justify that borrowing um, beyond just getting people back to work, we have to make investments in strategically important sustainable infrastructure that'll see us through the next you know, um, 20, 50, 100 years, which is what we're thinking about investing in um, as we move towards electrifying our transportation sector, recycled water, you know, deeper investments in, in renewable energy and so on and so forth. Um, and then there's, 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 there's um, climate mitigation, but the last criteria that I have is really starting to recognize that we need to be investing in climate adaptation. That extreme heat and the wildfires and the other impacts of climate, which will happen um, in the short run, regardless of how good of stewards we are, um, are impacting our communities in, in adverse ways. And we can, and we can, we can use this opportunity to create co-benefits that strengthen the resiliency and adaptive capacity of our communities. And so what we did um, was we, uh, at the Luskin Center, took three workforce studies that we have recently completed, one of which I'll feature today, which really focuses on the California climate investments um, that the state has made. Many of you know that the, the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund provides um, billions of dollars in revenue historically to fund um, these programs. And in 2008, we actually analyzed the workforce impact of, of approximately 30 of them. There are over 60 CCI funded programs now, um, but I'm gonna use the, the, the 28 to 30 that we, we analyzed as examples. And, and we're also gonna draw on utility scale programs that focus on energy efficiency and also building decarbonization um, analysis that was done by um, a colleague, Bethany Jones, um, and published through the LCI's um, uh, website. So we're, we're gonna be building off of these studies for those of you that are interested in um, reading them more closely, they're all on our website. What we, what we tried to do was really uh, answer um, five questions about each of these programs. And all I wanna do is, is tee these questions up and then we will, um, we'll move on. And, and we approach these questions by realizing we're trying to select programs to invest in that um, can be evaluated across multiple criteria. And we're trying to give folks an example, policymakers an example of how they can be more careful and thoughtful about where they put their investments. And so one of the things that we looked at is what is the share of program expenditures that directly target blue collar and low income workers? by looking at the share of jobs for California climate investment programs that go into construction, landscaping and horticultural services, ag, 
Transit, automobile manufacturing, duty bus, and truck manufacturing. So again, think about long-term strategic economic sectors and infrastructure. So one question is, are the, are the programs targeting the industries and occupations that we want? A second is, how impactful are they in creating um, jobs? How, how many jobs and job equivalents do they create? And so we, that's a fairly straightforward question to answer in the, the regional economic development literature. And, and we've done that for, for these 28 jobs, again, as an example. Third, um, does the program invest in, in strategic sustainable sectors? And I've identified four sectors that I think um, are really the, the lifeblood of the California economy, energy, um, water, clean transportation, and then material reuse and recycling. And, and I think we can look at, are we investing in the backbone and the, the transformation of each of these um, infrastructure systems in ways that are gonna make our state more resilient, uh, more cost-effective and competitive in the long run, and of course, more sustainable. Uh, again, if you're interested in the details, I would invite you to look at the study. And then, as I mentioned before, while we always think about the workers, we can also think about whether programs are going to provide services that improve the quality of life and the environment um, and the welfare of households, especially households that reside in our disadvantaged communities. And so we, we, we evaluate it for these 28 programs, um, whether they produce amenities or services that directly benefit households. And we also rate and report the share of the program benefits to what we call priority communities, which is sort of a mix of, of disadvantaged communities and low-income communities. So um, I'm, again, I won't go through the details, but I wanna show you that you can, you don't have to guess at this. We can actually look at the programs that are out there and we can, we can assess these. And then I'll, I'll close with this fifth um, uh, criteria, which is, you know, do these programs enable the state in addition to accomplishing the other four criteria, do they help the state adapt to future climate impacts, which we know we're gonna see more extreme heat days, more wildfires, um, some parts of the state will experience sea level rise, um, some will have ecological and habitat impacts because of changes in precipitation and temperature. Um, and so we rate them in terms of their ability to help both our households and communities, as well as our economic sectors, become more resilient. And, and so that's gonna do it for me, Fran. I'll, I'll pause there. I think I was almost on time. Uh, JR, thank you very much for those uh, comments and noting that we can find information online by Googling the Luskin Center and because uh, you've given us a lot to think about and I especially appreciate you mentioning the importance of adaptation, which is a growing concern. Um, everything seems to be accelerating quicker than we ever thought it would. So let's go on to our second speaker, and that's Bob Keefe. He is the Executive Director for Environmental Entrepreneurs, the EE, that's E2. He oversees E2's work across the country, from Boston to San Diego. I've known E2 for almost 20 years. We're getting ready for our 20th anniversary, and they're a wonderful business voice for sound environmental policies. He speaks regularly about economic benefits, about a clean energy future, and a strong economic future as well. And so let's go on and have everyone meet and learn from Bob Keefe. Thank you very much, Bob. Awesome, thank you, Senator. I'm really grateful to, to be here with all of you. If you don't know what E2 is, E2 is a national network of business owners, investors, and others who care about and advocate for policies that are good for our economy and good for our environment. We got our start here in California, as uh, Fran mentioned, 20 years ago, working on what then, bringing business voices to what then was the very first clean vehicle emission standards in the world. Uh, back then, they called it the Pavley Bill. And uh, I am uh, grateful and honored that 20 years later uh, to be alongside such a, uh, a fantastic climate champion as uh, uh, Fran Pavlik. Um, since then, E2 has grown to nine chapters, stretching from New York and New England to, as mentioned, Seattle and San Diego, where I happen to be today. We have about 8,000 members and supporters 
a lot of them work in clean energy, but a lot of them uh, work in everything else from real estate to investing to uh, restaurants and everything else. Uh, and what we do is we put those business voices to work. We uh, uh, bring those business voices to uh, tell the story of the economic benefits of uh, smart climate and clean energy policies uh, at the federal level and at the state level in a number of states that we work in, including this one. One way we do that, and we've been doing for a number of years, is by telling the story of the economic benefits of clean energy. And one of the best ways we found to do that is to tell how many people work in this sector. And let me tell you, it's a lot. Uh, for the past five plus years now, we've been putting out something called Clean Jobs America. Our latest uh, version came out about three or four weeks ago. Uh, we actually had it wrapped up three or four were at the end of the year. But uh, as we all know, things changed a little bit and had to do we had to do a little rewriting before we got that out a few a, a few weeks ago. And so maybe I can share with you some of what we know. Let me set the table, first of all, by talking about the size of the clean energy industry across America right now, about three point four million Americans work in clean energy in every state in the country. What, what's that look like? 3.4 million people, folks, that, that's more people than work as school teachers in America. It's more people than work as in real estate, in banking, as farmers. And by the way, it's about three times as many people that work in fossil fuels. Clean energy has been on a, on a fantastic growth streak over the past five years. Clean energy jobs have increased by more than 10% across the country. Uh, nationally, the workforce has uh, been increasing by about 6%. Uh, this is, and, and these are jobs, by the way, in every single sector you can imagine in America. These are uh, electricians and HVAC uh, technicians who work in energy efficiency. They're manufacturing jobs, making energy efficient uh, uh, Energy Star appliances and LED lighting systems and the building materials, low E windows and insulation and other building. Uh, uh, equipment that are making our homes, our schools, our offices more efficient. Uh, there are people making electric vehicles uh, in California and beyond. And it's all the people that support them as well. And these are jobs, by the way, in every state. Yes, California leads. Uh, California uh, has more than a half a million, or at the end of last year anyway, had more than a half a million people that worked in clean energy. Uh, but it's important to note that these are jobs all over the country as well. Um, I don't call them blue state jobs. I don't call them red state jobs. I call them red, white, and blue jobs because they're in every single state in the country and uh, don't believe anybody that tells you otherwise. I want to talk about what happened to this industry after COVID-19 struck. We took a close look at the, we had our researcher rather take a close look at the unemployment filings from March and April to figure out the impact that uh, the COVID-19 crisis and, and more accurately, the economic shutdown uh, uh, had on the industry. And what we found is that nearly 600,000 clean energy workers across America lost their jobs in March and April alone. Um, and it looks like it's only going to get worse. According to our research firm, BW Research, uh, the majority of these jobs were in energy efficiency. That's not surprising when you think that uh, in order for energy efficiency workers to do their jobs, doing energy audits, doing energy retrofits, they need to get into buildings, into homes, into offices. And when those homes are off limits and those buildings are closed, they can't do their jobs. Renewable energy also took a, a pretty big hit. Almost 100,000 people lost their jobs in, in solar and wind in March and April. Part of that was due to concerns about financing. Part of it was due to permitting issues. Part of it was due to supply chain issues. We have a, a great solar uh, company in Iowa, for instance, who told me that they couldn't get the uh, uh, panels they needed to do their job in the other parts because they were tied up in factories in China and elsewhere. We've got a great E2 member in Colorado who's in the wind industry uh, who was about to break ground on a huge wind farm in Indiana, I think. Uh, right about the time when two major wind turbine blade factories had to close because of COVID-19. So it's a whole host of uh, issues that are, that are causing these problems. And like the overall numbers, uh, every state is hurting as well. Uh, California uh, is hurting worse than most. About 20%, almost 20% of clean energy jobs in California disappeared 
in March and April alone. Um, but you'll see that this is this this is pain that's spread across the country. Uh, a little closer look at California, uh, Los Angeles County, and the Los Angeles Long Beach MSA both led the country in clean energy job losses. But you'll see a number of other parts of the state, not surprisingly, that were in the top ten for for clean energy job losses uh, in April as well. So what do we do about all this? Um, what we need to do is we get we need to get these people back to work. We need to get uh, these clean energy workers back on the job right away, uh, and we need to do it because it's important to the entire economy. I say that because again, if you look at where the the, the um, wide swath of occupations in which clean energy workers work, there's probably no other industry that covers as many types of jobs and many different occupations as clean energy. Again, we're talking construction sector, we're talking manufacturing sector, we're certainly talking energy sector, we're talking finance, uh, and we're talking about jobs in every single state of the country. If we're serious about getting our economy restarted and getting it back quicker, why wouldn't we focus on an area that can impact so many people across so many occupations in so many states, which by the way, has been the fastest growing sector in America's economy? Uh, it's what we need to do. We also know from his, what history tells us, and I think uh, Senator Pavley mentioned this uh, earlier, what happened uh, with the last economic recession that we had, or the Great Recession, if you will, and what we learned from that. In 2009, to try to, get us, to help us get us out of that recession, America invested about $90 billion into clean energy projects. And no part of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act uh, performed better or had more successes than that investment. What did we get for that $90 billion? We got 100,000 clean energy projects uh, all across the country, many here in California, but in every state. That put construction workers back on the job right away, and thousands and thousands of them. We weatherized a million homes under that project, uh, under that program. That, that put energy efficiency workers back on the job all across America, and by the way, uh, helped save a lot of money for cash-strapped consumers with every single electricity bill they had after that. We also, through the Department of Energy loan guarantee programs uh, and the SunShot program, actually, that uh, JR referenced, uh, helped jumpstart almost 500 companies, cutting-edge companies all across America, uh, that literally and, and truly changed the industries that they work in dramatically and changed the energy uh, sector in America as well. We're talking about companies like Tesla, uh, which got a DOE loan that was fully repaid, uh, revolutionized the electric vehicle industry for sure, and created about 45,000 jobs along the way. We also incentivized um, hundreds and hundreds of startups that were on the cutting edge of technology and solar and wind that in turn not only created new companies, created new jobs, but helped bring the price of solar and wind down to where it's the cheapest power available in most parts of the country right now, as Jay alluded to earlier. So we know this works. We know that there's no other sector that can have as big of an impact uh, on getting our economy started again. Uh, that's not just me saying that. If uh, Some of you may be familiar with a study that came out of Oxford University a week or so ago that surveyed something like 230 economists and uh, ministers of finance around the world who said, yes, this is the best way to restart the global economy. So at E2, for the past two months or so, we've been taking our business uh, members and uh, business leaders and connecting with lawmakers uh, virtually, of course, in, uh, in Washington and in our state capitals. Over the past couple of weeks, we've probably met with 100 different uh, Senate and House offices senators and representatives in Congress. And what we're telling them is that we need to get these workers back to work right away. We could do that with policies, specific policies that we know can get people going. But we also need to do, we also need to focus on the future. And we know, as mentioned, that there's no way to build back better. There's no way to build back faster when we're talking about our economy than clean energy. Fortunately, we've never been in a situation in America where we've stopped our economy and have to restart it, but that's what we have to do now. And we need to do it in a way, why wouldn't we do it in a way uh, that's, that's better and smarter? 
Um, we've got 200,000 miles of transmission lines in our electricity grid. Uh, why aren't we getting grid workers up there fixing these things so we don't have another catastrophic wildfire like we had when a, a hundred year old clip failed on a PG&E uh, uh, power line here two years ago. Right now, about 133,000 schools are sitting empty. They've been empty for three months. They'll be empty for another three months, if not longer. Why aren't we getting energy efficiency workers on the job in those schools, making them cleaner, making them more efficient, which are going to save cash-strapped states and municipalities money, put people on the job, and make those schools a little safer and cleaner when we finally get our kids back in there? We need to build that uh, the, the next uh, – U.S. highway system, a.k.a. A, a national car charging system, and we need to electrify government fleets, um, and we need to electrify our buildings. There are, there are a few municipalities in California, as some of you may know, that have already gone all electric. We need to be doing that more. We need to do it because it's good for the economy, because it's good for the environment, and because it's going to get Americans back to work. With that, I'm going to turn it back over to Senator Pavley and uh, be quiet for a while. Hey, thank you, Bob. Um, really appreciate all your information on how we can repower uh, America. And you, your organization has proved over and over again um, uh, that your policies are good for the economy and good for the environment. So let's go to our last speaker. Batting cleanup is Matt Peterson. He's the president and CEO of the Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator. Prior to joining Lacey, he was appointed by Merrick Mayor Eric Garcetti is the first Chief Sustainability Officer for the City of Los Angeles. Matt was the Chief Architect of the groundbreaking Sustainability Plan for LA. I first met Matt about 20 years ago. He was President and CEO of Global Green USA for nearly 20 years. Today he is leading the charge, that's no pun intended, as a leader of accelerating the investment and use of EVs. So. Uh, please join me in welcoming Matt Peterson, and thank you for coming, Matt. Thanks, Fran. Thanks for having me. Great to be with everybody. And you may not remember, but we met in 1992, Ooh. I think in the living room with Tony Bielenson when I was running his campaign. And you were, you were That's mayor right. That, that is long ago. We were just, what, teenagers? Yes, teenagers. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, well, it's good to be part of this conversation. Um, let me just frame a little bit about our organization uh, and what we're doing. Um, first, we're known as a startup incubator, and that's the core of who we are and uh, the work we do. We just onboarded uh, a new cohort of 16 startups that we're really excited about, and we're doing virtual curriculum training and engagement and getting them ready to take their work to the next level. And eight of those startups, uh, half are, are related to transportation electrification and some very exciting startups uh, that we're working with that we'll hope to tell people more about. The uh, thing I want to focus on here is just the, the work we've been doing in our transportation electrification partnership. And we and you've been involved, Fran, uh, uh, throughout the partnership and giving us feedback. And um, we've talked to JR about the work we're doing. We really want to help LA and the region lead in um, zero emissions, goods movement and transportation electrification and to get to our greenhouse gas emission targets and, and air quality targets, we're going to have to also focus on mode shift, which is which is critical and also going to be harder in, in the months and years ahead as people um, uh, may be concerned about getting in public transit. So um, that said, we created this partnership. It's a public-private partnership. You see at the top the folks involved uh, at the leadership level, sort of the policy or governance um Body. It's the mayor's office. It's uh, CARB, uh, uh, county, DDVP, Metro, and Southern California Edison, as well as Lacey. And you know, the mayor has been uh, directly involved in day to day, represented by Lauren uh, Faber O'Connor, the CSO for the mayor. Um, Mary Nichols is personally involved with leadership of Edison, DDVP, and Metro. Phil Washington is is personally involved. So, really, at the uh, the top leadership levels are engaging uh, in this conversation and this work, as well as the corporate leadership that we're seeing across the board and IBW 11 and small governments and others around the region. 
So I'm not going to talk too much about the targets that we're focused on there, other than to say we're trying to bring a sense of possibility and urgency and ambition uh, to use the Olympics as a, as, a, as a sense of opportunity. And we know how uh, the region came together in the 84 Olympics uh, and did things people didn't think were possible, uh, whether it was cleaner skies or uh, less traffic on the freeways uh, through a number of interventions, voluntary uh, interventions. To here, we want to both build on policy goals and, and regulations that whether it's CARB or the mayor or the others are putting in place along with this ambition. So uh, in the spirit of that, we put forth our three-prong call to action last November in our roadmap, our 2.0 roadmap. Um, initial goal was an additional 25% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions and air pollution. And, and then we defined the targets to get there by sector. So you can see some pretty ambitious targets we have uh, to get 30% of all the cars on the road by 2028 to be uh, battery electric, um, fully electric. That means 80% of the cars need to be as old. Uh, current fleet projections uh, need to be uh, battery electric. A mode shift target of an additional 25, 20% mode shift. And then a commitment to no more subsidy for anything but uh, zero emissions, whether it's uh, battery electric or fuel cell for goods movement. Um, and we're seeing the medium-duty market really pick up as IKEA is going to have 100 electric trucks here in L.A. by the end of the year. Uh, FedEx and others are really moving aggressively as, as well with DHL. So that's a bit of framing uh, for what we're doing. And, and uh, we just wrapped up our uh, two-day virtual retreat of the Transportation Partnership where one of our final topics was economic regional strategy. And uh, goods movement was at the center, and we talked about the 40% target we have to get all the trucks on the road, the short-haul dredge trucks to be uh, zero emissions by 2028. It's going to take a lot of work, but in the context of this economic crisis, how do we uh, find the silver lining? I mean, there is, it's hard in this one, but we, uh, as we've talked about, need to. You know, we've heard about the job losses. We've heard about the challenges in the economy. Um, we know We know we need to do something. Uh, and so we put together a comprehensive $150 billion, that's a B, uh, proposal to Congress um, called Keeping America Working, Protecting Public Health, and Strengthening Our Communities, really uh, with the lens of job creation and, and economic recovery as well as clean air. Um, so what's that include? $25 billion for manufacturing of vehicles, creating demand for vehicles, uh, clash for clunker type things. $85 billion for charging infrastructure with a big focus on heavy-duty um, charging for vehicles and uh, for trucks. $25 billion for moving towards zero emissions um, public transit, uh, including electric buses, as well as active transit and safer streets. Uh, $12.5 billion for workforce development and job training, including a billion dollars for apprenticeship programs with IBW and, and others uh, in the labor movement. Uh, and then $2.5 billion for the innovation ecosystem both to help startups but and also small businesses and prioritizing founders of those companies who are represented and have a tougher access, getting access to capital, women and people of color in particular. But included in that is a, a lot of funding for uh, job training, again, to pair with the startups, but also pilot opportunities to put uh, innovations in place in partnership with local and regional government. So we put this forth at the end of April. We have an additional uh, sign-on uh, letter that uh, businesses and organizations from across the state of California, and because the initial proposal was just from the members of TEP, uh, the Transportation Partnership. And now we're getting organizations on board from Ohio and Michigan and, and, and Tennessee and Alaska, and, um, really to build a coalition nationally. And uh, earlier this week, there was a proposal from from environmental NGOs uh, that uh, uh, Union Concerned Scientists and others were involved in that sort of echoed a lot of what we have here. Uh, so we hope to see some momentum off. Unfortunately, I don't think the Senate leadership is eager to take anything up like this anytime soon, but uh, we hope it's a template uh, should things change. Um, and uh, whether it's the White House prioritizes infrastructure or we see some changes come November uh, that we're ready to roll. So. That is um, my quick uh, presentation on this and, and really just looking at how we double down and creating clean air, uh, jobs, and economic opportunity for the United States, in particular for our region.
Yes, thank you very much, uh, Matt. You've done an amazing job. It's really been fun for me to watch, especially right now, taking off on fleet vehicles and EVs as a model. Um, and you're right, it's stimulating jobs. For those who don't know, it, we're actually manufacturing these new buses right here in our area. So creating the jobs you talked about. And as a native edge in Lino, of course, cleaning up air pollution, as well as addressing climate change is really important too. So thank you very much for your leadership. So we're ready for some Q&A. Let's start with this one. It's from Dan Kegel. Excuse me if I'm not pronouncing your name correctly. One key question is how to get Let's see. One key question is how to get people to see EVs as a real option. A cheap way to increase vis visibility of EVs would be EV chargers every places, but just in general, uh, access to EV infrastructure, charge, what are some of the efforts underway? And why don't we start with you, Matt, to answer that question if possible? Sure. Um, you know, I think we collectively, you know, those that are focused on, on this sector, uh, have known that some, um, to get over range anxiety, to get over, which is not really real uh, in most cases, um, every electric vehicle, even those with shorter ranges, cover 80% of anybody's needs in, uh, uh, in, a, in a pure battery electric vehicle. But still, people have that concern. So how do we make sure that charging is visible? And I think that was an early strategy in placing some charging stations back when the EV1 was in place in supermarket parking lots. But now we need to return to that and, and make that available. So whether it's Electrify America or EVgo or Green Lots, putting in charging infrastructure in Walmart parking lots, we're seeing that happen. Um, so how do we identify those sites where it's both important from a visibility standpoint, but from also a charging infrastructure standpoint in terms of allowing people, particularly in multifamily dwelling units and apartment buildings or condos to be able, that don't have necessarily a place to plug in, that they can go and get an opportunity charge while they shop. And we're also, to complement that, we need workplace charging is really critical. So those are the two things, along with a need to get charging infrastructure into lower income communities, disadvantaged communities, so that as used EVs become more affordable and prevalent, we, we can help lower-income families be able to get into the behind the wheel of an EV if they're going to buy a vehicle. As well as doing like EV car share, which we're doing. Uh, well, I was in the mayor's office. We got the Blue LA program going with subsidy from CARB and a grant we won, and that's that's expanding. Uh, and then we're doing two pilots, one in Pacoima and one in San Pedro in far-flung parts of LA, which is pretty vast, sprawling 500-square-mile metropolis to provide EV car sharing with our startup Envoy and uh, at housing authority projects. So there are other ways to deliver electric mobility along with charging that others can use. Really important topic, Matt, and people can get hold of you at Lacey if they'd like to follow up, I assume. So um, let's go on and ask another question. And I see that there's a question from uh, someone associated with Southern California Edison. It says, considering that the air around Los Angeles and other large cities became cleaner due to more people working from home lately, does this impact how companies will operate going forward? Um, JR or Bob, anyone want to tackle that one? Uh, well, sure. I'll, um, I'll just it's sort of building off of what Matt said. I, I think that um, one of the things that we've all gotten to experience is cleaner air. And um, a, a recent study done by Yifeng Zhu, Dr. Zhu here at, um, at UCLA, actually simulates um, what would happen if the entire region was electric. And that, that's not just late duty, but medium and heavy duty as well. And uh, it, it is essentially the kind of air that we have enjoyed during the early part of the pandemic. So that's what we could have if we were all electric. And I, I think... Um, just to kind of continue to keep the, the pandemic and the stimulus in focus and coming back to this idea that it's going to hit us in waves, one of the things that um, is a, a silver lining and is very achievable right now is bus electrification. And many of our regional transit agencies have committed to electrifying their buses rapidly by 20, 2030 and all need to be compliant by 2035. And at the same time, they, they're being hit financially because of contractions in tax revenues and, and ridership fares and things like that. And so we need to make sure that we, we stay disciplined and we stay focused on that. 
And, and I think that that would be something I would also highlight. The other thing that's happening is, you know, while there's a drop in demand, we, we need to we, we need to take this opportunity to make sure that we're um, we're availing ourselves of the latest charging technology. You know, your earlier question, Fran, about, you know, how do we get people in the vehicles? What people don't, I think, appreciate is there are over 35 electric vehicle models on the market today. There are six that go over 200 miles in electric range and cost less than $38,000. So within the last 24 months, there is a transformation that has started happening. And um, because of, of advances in China and, and Northern Europe, in this area, we're likely to see benefits coming to us in Southern California, where we used to be in the leader. We're going to have some help, I think, um, pushing the automakers to produce um, cleaner vehicles throughout the kind of the fleet. All right. Thank you very much. So uh, this one is from Ryan Snyder, and uh, he has a very good question. We have spent uh, the last couple of questions more on transportation and energy related. Any thoughts on other key sustainable issues such as water supply, water quality, or waste management, or even organic agriculture? Bob, do you have any thoughts on any of those topics? Well, uh, in the frame of economic recovery, yes, uh, we, we should be looking at the major se sectors of our economy, right? And certainly that's energy, that's transportation. Another big one is agriculture. Uh, we have a lot of opportunities during this great pause, if you will, to incentivize and move the agriculture community, which is so important here in California, uh, to come back cleaner and greener, if you will, uh, through low-carbon ag, uh, through uh, working on ways to uh, get innovation in, in ag tech into the field. So we're actually sequestering carbon through our agricultural work. And, uh, by the way, helping a lot of struggling farmers to do it. Yes, very good. I know there's a lot of interest in healthy soils and carbon right. sequestration and appreciate that answer. So let's try another question here. comes from Mike Antos. The company is Santec. Uh, the ports had a lot of trouble upgrading to cleaner fossil fuel trucks. How can we make sure their path to electricity is less painful? I don't have an answer to that, but uh, who would like to answer? I can speak to that one, and I know Matt might have ideas. But, I mean, there's, a, there's an increasing focus on trying to get clean trucks into the hands of the independent contractors and the small, the small business owners that, that own most of those trucks. And, and we're looking at a lot of different um, solutions from um, leasing programs that would that would allow them to overcome the capital constraints of having to purchase these vehicles um, to making sure we have EV rates for those uh, trucks so that they have lower cost to refuel. And also, I think the, the really the key technology challenge there is, is um, it's going to be charging infrastructure. And, and so the region is starting to come together to really begin to focus on, on that challenge. This one is in regards, is a question regarding how can we bring uh, programs like this to our LAUSD schools? Someone brought it out in their presentation. Oh, Bob did, you did. On uh, If we invest in our schools and energy efficiency and everything, we actually could save money, which could be reinvested in the classroom. So how, how can we do that? They're limited in money. I'd probably <laughs> ask a former school teacher slash legislator that, that question. So maybe you can answer it better, Fran. Hey. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we're actually talking about uh, doing just that with uh, a combination of Southern California Edison and other entities. LAUSD may not be an Edison country, but if you get together with your local utility provider and some kind of shared responsibility, I, I think there's opportunities now in how to build resilience for schools because shutting down schools every time there's a power outage or air pollution problems is really not the answer. Some schools have gotten money through uh, solar panels where companies will come in and put in the pan renewable energy in exchange for paying them back through the savings on your utility accounts. There's a school district called Oak Park near where I live. They're 80% off the grid and they're putting $500,000 a year back in their school district on, by investing in energy efficiency. So there's programs out there. Last question, because they get the award from 
listening in from the furthest away is from the New York City Mayor's Office, Aaron Ordower. And his question is, in the past, some workforce development programs, for example, solar installers, have been unsuccessful at reliability placing people in jobs. Any recommendations on how green workforce programs can be designed to have the greatest impact? So I, I, I could speak to that. I think a, a lot of the training happens at the regional level, community colleges, and and I think the, 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 the question is a really valid question. I mean, there were moments in the, time, in the history of Los Angeles where we had a mismatch between the number of workers trained and the programs that would incentivize solar adoption. And so I, I think we, the answer to the question is we have to stay cognizant of um, making sure that we have robust programs to incentivize the expansion of these markets as we move forward and, and keep track of where we are. I think most folks on the call probably don't appreciate the state of is now over 60% renewable across the board. And there are many communities within the city of Los, within the county of Los Angeles that are 100% clean energy now. And so, the, 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 you know, in some ways we're moving quickly and we need to keep track of where, where we need additional workforce growth and where we've met goals already. Because we've, some things we've accomplished, uh, much to our surprise, um, and then other areas um, we need to do more in. And so balancing the, the workforce training with the, the demand for those workers is going to be really important. I'll just quickly add that we've been doing a job training program uh, on EV charger maintenance. And a lot of the maintenance required for EV chargers is actually the backhaul, the, the data connection that goes down, not necessarily the actual electric uh, you know, charging component. And it's really, it's going to be a growing opportunity. It's a lower skill set than required for uh, actual installation. And we had in our, co our job training cohort 30 individuals, a third of whom were formerly incarcerated, a couple of veterans. And uh, we put them in the field in a paid internship working with uh, EV Connect, one of the regional uh, charging uh, companies. And I think that's going to be an opportunity as well as training, uh, safety certification training. So I think there's going to be a lot of pipeline opportunities. And thank you for all those questions. So let me now turn this back over to J.R. DeSaggio. Uh, for our closing comments. Well, Fran, I want to first thank you for an excellent job moderating and for sharing your, your experience and, and helping us organize today's event. And I, I also want to thank uh, you know, our, our two panelists, um, Bob and Matt, so much for your, your contributions today. We really value your insights and, and, and advice as we move forward and, and think about crafting a sustainable stimulus package. And I want to thank everybody listening. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity to engage with you all. And to we, we hope we can all stay connected, both to UCLA and USC, as we move forward. And that's it for our bonus episode. Thank you for listening. And remember to subscribe to Political Climate wherever you get podcasts.